Psychiatry is so underappreciated. I was raised an activist. My dad was commander of the Black Panther militia. I have a picture of my mom with my brother when he was two. She's a public school teacher picketing. And I was like, yeah, this is the specialty for me. Hi, I'm Bond Koo, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast where I search for ways that we can design our lives to be healthier. I am a physician, an educator, and a researcher. I explore how the worlds of design, art, science, and health intersect. I love this episode. I'm joined by Dr. Nzinga Harrison. She's a practicing psychiatrist and an addiction medicine specialist. She is the co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health, and she even has her own podcast called In Recovery. We recorded our conversation in late August, and I really enjoyed speaking with her because Dr. Harrison, she's not afraid to shine light to those things in our lives that we push into the dark. One of my goals for each podcast is for each one of us listening to learn something new from each guest so that we can apply a lesson to our own lives that's going to help us to be healthier, more creative, or become better at our work. After this conversation with Dr. Harrison, I personally have been trying to redesign my days in order to create space to quiet my brain because I'm addicted to chaos. And like many of you, I'm addicted to my work. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. We talk about the stigma around mental health, how many of us are hardwired for addictive behaviors and my own personal addiction to surfing. Yes, surfing. Dr. Nzinga Harrison, thank you for joining me on Design Lab. Thank you, Vaughn. Super excited to be here. Cool. And can I be informal and call you by your first name? For Nzinga? sure. Okay. I, and I appreciate you asking. I've been taking a deep dive into learning more about you. I've listened to many of your podcasts. And I know you originally had wanted to become a surgeon in <laughs> medical school. Then you shifted gears and became a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about why you did that? Yeah. So I think part of it is <clears throat> you can imagine what you can see. And so I kind of decided as a little kid that I would be a doctor and I don't have doctors in my family. So the doctors that I knew were pediatricians. And so when I was young, I thought I would be a pediatrician. But then I wasn't having like a great experience with my own pediatrician because he didn't talk to me like he only talked to my mom i was kind of invisible in the room and so in seventh grade i got diagnosed with scoliosis and i had to go see an orthopedic surgeon luckily i avoided surgery but that surgeon was like the kind of doctor that i wanted to be and in that moment i was like i'm gonna be a surgeon and so i went to medical school with that concept that i would be a surgeon like dr mark but I loved pediatrics, so I was like, I'll be a pediatric surgeon. But as medical school went on, while I loved surgery, I loved the OR, I definitely could have been a great surgeon. When I did my psychiatry rotation, then learning about the biology of behavior and thinking and just how much of the choices, and the listeners can't see me do my air quotes, that we make are chemical and electrical and how much our past experiences are affecting our decisions today and we don't even know it and how much life and stress turns into health. 
I was like, oh man, this is like other doctors don't know this. Psychiatry is so underappreciated. I was raised an activist, right? Like my dad was commander of the Black Panther militia. I have a picture of my mom with my brother when he was two. She's a public school teacher picketing. And I was like, that is this amazing. Is That's so cool. Yeah. I was like, this is the specialty for me, like advocacy, um, just like a group of people who are underappreciated, a science that is underappreciated. It tapped all my buttons. I practice as an emergency medicine physician, mm -hmm. but I remember in medical school, psychiatry had the most profound impact upon my education. It was more influential really? than actually any other rotation because it opened my eyes to a part of who we are as human mm -hmm. that I had never seen before that I understood this, but then to have it um, just articulated in a way mm -hmm. that I did not understand before that suddenly things made sense. I was like, oh, this is why my friend acts this way. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And this is why I act this way, right? Yes. And so you had that same compelling experience, but still somehow we lost you to emergency. <laughs> I love your podcast. It's called In Recovery. And in your own words, what you do is you try to shine light to those things that we push into the dark. And mm -hmm. your topics range from alcohol addiction to work addiction to sex addi addiction. I've learned so much listening to you and that podcast. It's one of my favorites now. Hey, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and. There's a lot of confusion about how you actually define addiction. So in your own words, how would you define addiction? So it's important to know that the definition of addiction that we're using on the podcast in recovery is a conceptual addiction. Because in medicine, it's similar to how we talk about people being depressed, just like in real life, you're depressed. But in medicine, when we say you have major depression, that means something specifically. Or we say in real life, that person has high blood pressure, but when you're in the ED and you say this person has essential hypertension or hypertensive crisis, that has a medical construct that wraps around it. Mm -hmm. So on in recovery, the conceptual definition or thesis of addiction that we're using is anything as humans that we keep doing despite negative consequences. And what's really important about it is that as humans, we don't do anything that doesn't bring benefit. And so even though the negative consequences may be outweighing the benefits, that's where we fall into our thesis of addiction. Mm -hmm. We have to look at what is the benefit, because if you ever hope to, quote, treat that addiction, you have to be able to get that benefit from somewhere else. I, I love that definition because it broadens our mind to think about addictions outside of alcohol or mm -hmm. gambling or drugs. Mm -hmm. And I've talked a lot about this to my friends that I feel like I have a work addiction. And then you have a podcast. A whole episode. It, a whole episode. Can, you, <laughs> can you tell me about this undiagnosed addiction in our country to work? Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually affecting our health physically and mentally. And so using that concept, right, work, when we engage in work, either in a way or so excessively 
that it starts to have negative consequences that outweigh the positive consequences, then we're looking at work addiction. Part of the issue in this country, and you'll hear this on the podcast, Bond, over and over, we get programmed. No matter where you grow up, and you get programmed in the culture of your family, the culture of your neighborhood, the culture of your community, the culture of that country that you're in. Mm -hmm. And in this country, we define so much of a person's value by their career. Mm -hmm. And that lends itself to work addiction because when you're trying to get your value from that job, like your innate human value, which in reality, you have it the day you're born, like period, you got in this world, you have it. But in the United States, at least, we make people prove their value through all of these superficial things, career included. And so when you work to the point that you're having relationship problems, Mm -hmm. when you work to the point that you're having migraines, when you work to the point that you have carpal tunnel, when you work to the point, and yet despite your body, brain screaming out like, work is killing us, that is the way that you're satisfying the fear, stress, anxiety, danger of not being able to have the value that comes with being a successful working person. Mm-hmm. We're looking at addiction to work. I think in our culture, we celebrate work addiction and it gets affirmed a lot. So it's just like terrible, positive reward behavior that we work ourselves to death, we get promoted, we become more successful. And I have never actually gone on a vacation where I have not answered an email or done something work-related. I have a terrible work addiction and I actually look forward to vacation sometimes Mm because I go, well, now I could carve out some hours to that research project that I did not have time for. And after a few days when I just try to like not work, I feel like I'm actually like detoxing from work and it has You're like a withdrawal. physical withdrawal. Is that real? That is real, Bond. That is real. You don't just feel like you're in withdrawal. You are in withdrawal. What are these? Like, it's crazy. <laughs> like, we don't think that we can have physical withdrawal from work, but I feel it after yeah. I'm not working for a couple of days and I just get some anxiety that I need to do work or that's right. I get a little depressed and yep. feel like maybe I'm not doing I like I just don't feel good about myself. Yep. Yep. And so what's so interesting about that is because it's true. The withdrawal from work addiction will start with emotions. So we think about addiction in three cycles. There's like intoxication. Mm-hmm. That's while you're working. And then when you stop working, there's withdrawal. And then withdrawal drives craving, which is the anticipation of using. And right now the drug that we're talking about is work. Mm -hmm. And so then you work and you get intoxicated. And that's like the three steps, intoxication, withdrawal, craving, intoxication, withdrawal, craving. And Mm -hmm. so the craving for work addiction usually will start emotionally, anxiety, a sense of dread, Mm -hmm. the pressure building up, but our bodies and brains, like our nerves flow from the brain through the body seamlessly. And so that's what you're feeling. Work withdraw, withdraw from your drug, Bon. <laughs> oh my gosh, I need help. <laughs> I, yeah. I, and looking at addiction through this lens, can we get addicted to good things like exercise and activities? Because yes. I have 
long, I've joked around a lot about being addicted to surfing because that's one of my passions in mm -hmm. life. How do you distinguish between what's just an obsession versus uh -huh. what's an addiction? So the linchpin of addiction is that negative consequence. Mm -hmm. So you literally could surf 40 hours a day. I know that's like not even possible. <laughs> But you could serve 40 hours a day. And if there are not negative consequences knocking on your door because of that, then we wouldn't ever call it an addiction. Mm. Right. But if you're going surfing instead of going to work and now you're about to lose your job and you're going surfing instead of hanging out with your significant other and now mm. you're about to lose your relationship and you're going surfing instead of hanging out with your kids and your kids are like, where's my dad? He's surfing. Right. And then what's tricky about it, so nobody is going to be like judging you for surfing. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to be judging you for working, even though those negative consequences are there. And so that makes it so easy. This is the other thing we're trying to do with the show and recovery. And at Eleanor, like, let's not get out of here without talking about Eleanor Health. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is break down this idea that like there are those people they get addicted to things because mm. we've carved out drugs and like that's those people mm -hmm. and they're somehow different from the rest of us when really every single one of us is engaging in some behavior that we would change in a sustainable way if it were easy to do so so that we could reduce the negative consequences. And I noticed that I was so addicted to surfing that I actually would take separate vacations from my family. I was at the airport one time and my family was going to vacation in Mexico and I was going by myself to Peru to go surfing. And I thought, this? I am not being a good father and husband here. I'm going on separate vacations for my family in order to surf. This, this has the makings of an addiction there, Vaughn. <laughs> And so then we have to ask the question, like, this is the other thing with drug addiction. We expect people to go 100 percent abstinence or else you're just weak and morally unable to make the right decision. Right. That's mm -hmm. how we that's how we talk about people and treat people not on in recovery. If you listen, I'm curious to know from your thoughts of how do we stigmatize addiction in our country? Immediately from the very beginning, we stigmatize addiction as if people with addiction just can't make good decisions. Mm -hmm. And it kind of starts from that, like you just can't make good decisions and that's why you use drugs, that's why you're addicted to drugs. And so what I do so much, like one of my favorite things to do is to talk about the neurobiology of substance use disorders and drug addiction and every time I give this talk to a general public and I talk about the prefrontal cortex, which is right under your brain, and that's your CEO, and your CEO is doing your decision making and your decision making is leading to your behaviors. But then you have your deep brain that we all share with animals. And that's just trying to keep you alive. Hmm. It doesn't care about long term. It doesn't care about strategic thinking. It is just like in this moment, what is going to keep me alive? and it's driven by dopamine. And so the things that keep us alive, food, water, sex, nurturing, those are the natural determinants of dopamine. When you just look at the way the brain works, the size of that dopamine signal and how long that dopamine stays around tells that system how important this is. 
And so this is what was happening with your surfing bond, mm -hmm. is that the dopamine signal you were getting from surfing was bigger and more prolonged than the dopamine signal you were getting from everything else that you were deprioritizing. And so that's not because Bond's a douchebag. <laughs> Some people think that though. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a whole nother pod. Yeah, that's, we'll a whole nother, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> that's not because Bond's a douchebag. That's because surfing for some reason has the ability to develop a bigger dopamine signal. And so when we look at people with addiction, like first of all, the size of the dopamine signal that drugs can generate, like just forget it. I always say it's like food is like a light bulb and cocaine is like the brightness of the sun mm -hmm. in terms of intensity of dopamine signal. And so then you can understand why the person quote chose cocaine over their family or chose cocaine over food or chose cocaine. If you could just look at it biologically, but what we do from the very beginning is say like, there's just something weak about you. Mm -hmm. You just, you don't care about your family or you would make a different decision. When in reality, people with substance use disorders and other addictions are suffering and are vulnerable and it's an awful illness to have. And by judging people, we're actually making the illness worse because negative, like being kicked out of the pack, not having a tribe, not being accepted, all of those are existential threats, mm -hmm. which drives that part of the brain to fix it right now in this moment, regardless of long-term consequences, it sets up this terrible cycle. Do you think some of us are more hardwired to yeah. addictive behaviors? 100%, and the answer, I'm gonna be very clear about this, people always ask me, do some people just have addictive personalities? Right now, throw the phrase addictive personality right out the window hmm. because addictive personality comes with judgment of you as a person. Hmm. When I say, yes, some people are hardwired, the same way some people are hardwired to develop high blood pressure, the same way people are hardwired to develop diabetes, the same way people are hardwired to develop asthma. Yes, literally the same percentage of risk for substance use disorders is coded in your DNA as all of those I just mentioned. Mm. The genetic risk is between 40 and 60%. Yeah. So yes. Wait, 40 to 60%? Oh, that shocked you. 40 to 60% of your risk of developing addiction, diabetes, type two, hypertension, essential hypertension. This is for my physicians that are listening. So y'all can, yeah. can pull the McClellan study and check <laughs> me on it, okay? And asthma. <coughs> 40 to 60% of that risk is coded in your DNA. Now, what's important, Bond, is that means 60 to 40% of the risk is environmental. This is nature nurture. Mm -hmm. We, of course, get this from twin studies and longitudinal studies, right? Yeah. 60 to 40% is environmental. And the problem in this country is that we're super failing on that 60 to 40%. Mm. And f for me, there is alcohol use disorders in my family. Mm -hmm. There's very close relatives who uh, use way too much alcohol. Mm -hmm. They're addicted. And mm -hmm. 
And I got to recognize that in my own life. And during this pandemic, I think there's been a lot of us who've been drinking a little bit too much wine. Absolutely. I had to drink a lot of bourbon to help me get through this wave that we had of COVID mm -hmm. in April working in the emergency room. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to just like take a break for a little bit and just recognize that, call it out. But I'm still a little bit insecure to share that with my colleagues. Or when uh -huh. they tell them, I go, hey, I'm just gonna take a little break. They're like, oh, why? You don't have a problem. Maybe I don't have a problem, but I'm predisposed to it. And You're like, I don't wanna get a problem. Yeah, and but there's almost this kind of, there's like this sense of shame in talking about totally. it. Totally. You know what I wish for, Bond? I wished like you could be in a bar, and, and it's pervasive, oh, it's pervasive. I wish you could be in a bar and say, I'm not drinking because I'm at risk for alcoholism, mm -hmm. or I'm not drinking because I have alcoholism and I'm in remission without getting the eyeballs. You literally yes. burst in flame from the eyeballs, but you could easily say, everybody's passing around a cigar because somebody just had a baby. You could easily say, I'm not gonna smoke that cigar because my cancer is in remission. Mm. And everybody would be like, oh my God, put out all the cigars, throw them out the window. None of us need to smoke because Bond's cancer is in remission. Mm. If we could get there, we literally would reduce the prevalence, morbidity, and mortality of substance use disorders in this country. That, that's a great analogy to use. Like, how do we normalize this behavior and talk about it in a way that's not so shocking to people? That's and right. I tell people I, I have a therapist and I get therapy. Yes. And but when I tell people, they're like, oh, is, what's wrong is with there, you? Is everything OK? And I know and I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about these barriers to getting help. Mm -hmm. And especially mm -hmm. in my community, Asian people do not get help. Mm -hmm. They'll not get mental health. There's mm -hmm. such a stigma around it. It's a shame culture. Mm -hmm. And do you find that in certain communities, those barriers are higher, like in communities of color, of seeking Absolutely. out mental health? Absolutely, the barriers are definitely higher. So just like you said, part of your culture and Asian culture is like, no, shame. We do not seek treatment for mental health. I think that layers on top of that, especially for black communities, that same type of shame is there because also just the history in this country is like, you had to be strong to survive. Mm. Like you couldn't get depressed and survive slavery. And so like any kind of display of quote weakness, and I'm saying quote because depression is not weakness, but that's how it can be perceived in this country. Layer on top of that, going into systems that are not safe, like systems that are riddled with systemic racism where you literally get mistreated, where literally your risk of dying is higher. And the fear of expressing that vulnerability to a dangerous system is a huge access barrier. And that's not just for black populations, that's for LGBTQ plus mm -hmm. folks, that's for immigrants, that's for people in lower socioeconomic communities who are marginalized and oppressed. That's for older adults who don't wanna lose their independence and so they don't seek help because they think somebody's gonna say, you're too old to be on your own. Hmm. We do it in so many different ways. Stigma is a huge barrier and that's driving death. People are dying. If we made it easier 
and more acceptable and more accessible, mm. we wouldn't see the death that we see. How does Eleanor Health make mental health services more accessible? Because you have a unique model. Yeah, so the listeners can't see my big smile. I probably, Eleanor Health is like, you know, besides my husband and kids, like the thing that I'm most proud of. It's incredible. And so we are a new company. We're like pushing our 16th month of clinical services. And we do longitudinal, compassionate, long-term care for people affected by addiction. When you move to what we call value-based reimbursement in healthcare, then it's not paying for one service, one bill, which drives quantity. It's paying for, did people get better? Quality, right? Like it's based on outcomes. And so at Eleanor Health, we say we're value-based because we're getting those contracts where it's not quantity of service, it's quality of service. We just rolled out of this conversation about stigma and how we marginalize people that have addiction and how we push that topic into the dark. Mm -hmm. Eleanor in Greek literally means shining light. Mm -hmm. And it's like, at Eleanor, we wanna be that shining light where you know you can come to us and say, I'm not even sure I have a problem with alcohol, but I might. And we're like, all right, let's figure it out. I'm gonna pick on people like me, men, who have suffered from this toxic ma masculinity that's mm -hmm. been so programmed. prevalent. In a, yeah, programmed in our country. I've been programmed mm -hmm. to go, hey, you know, we're strong. We don't need to seek mental health or seeking mental health is a sign of weakness. So I wish more men that I knew would get help. What are some ways that we could encourage men to get mental health? I am so there with you. So one of the ways is that this archetype of men that we have in this culture is as the protector. And so what I try to tell my men that come to us, especially my men of color, especially my black men, is that you cannot adequately protect if you're not fortified. Mm -hmm. And so it's not weakness to prepare yourself for the battle. It's not weakness to put on an armor. It's not weakness to build a whole army that supports you in serving in that role of protector for the people that you love that you're trying to keep safe. And when you have the amount of emotional trauma generationally that we have in this country, you can't be an army of one. Hmm. That's not an armor often that you can stitch yourself. And so it's actually a sign of strength to build your army to include a mental health support person that has been trained professionally to prepare you for this battle of protecting your loved ones and moving through life in this country. It, it's like this idea of having a mental health trainer. And Absolutely. Like kind of like how we have physical that. health trainers. And if there's no difference stolen. between, yeah, exactly. Hashtag stolen. <laughs> yeah, if there's no difference between physical health and mental health, we just need a mental health trainer to strengthen our brains, our minds, because there's no stigma around getting a weightlifting coach or getting That's a strength right. trainer. That's Why right. Why can't we have a mental health trainer? I, I promise to attribute this idea to you 
when you hear it on the next episode of In Recovery Vibe because if you are listening, you are going to hear it, period. That is spot on. That's exactly it. You just got me so hyped. That is spot on. (laughs) Well, I'm always looking for ways how we could redesign our lives to be healthier. And so much of it is around language. Yes. Right. And so much of the language around addiction is wrong. It's toxic and it Mm -hmm. lends to stigma. Can you talk about the language that we use? Yeah, absolutely. And and it is the, the littlest things, right? So even I started b- becoming super aware of language um, very young. So I mentioned my dad was commander of the local Black Panther militia. My mom was a teacher and we were raised celebrating Kwanzaa. And the second principle of Kwanzaa is Kuji Chagalia, self-determination, to name yourself, define yourself, and speak for yourself instead of being named, defined, spoken for by others. And so that was like one of the grounding principles that I grew up with. And so it was like, no, you don't let a person pronounce your name wrong because that's like, you have to define that. Mm -hmm. You don't let somebody use words against you that you don't accept because you have to define yourself. And so when we talk about addiction, even the idea, like you'll never hear me call somebody a diet. Well, you won't hear me say a diabetic either, but I meant to say an addict, Mm. right? That person's illness of addiction is not singularly defining. And so when you say, not to mention all of the pejorative images that we conjure up when we say addict, which prevents a lot of people from being able to see themselves as needing help, then always lead with the person. That is a person with, because you are a person first, and there may be all of these other things about you, but you have to define yourself. So like I define myself as a black woman, wife, mother, physician, everything else. Right. Like that's the order that I define myself. And so if we're honoring each other as humans, one health is being able to know what your self-definition is. And then being a health supporter is being able to operate within that person's self-definition. I I personally have had to unlearn some of the language that I use. Right. Um, Right. That's a person in room six. Yeah. That's a person in room six. That's the first thing. That's the first thing you need to know. Mm. It's that's a person. Yeah. I I heard one podcast where you talk about we have difficulty quieting our brains, that Mm -hmm. there is this chaos, that we are addicted Mm -hmm. to chaos. Mm -hmm. And I totally feel I have it. I totally have that. And I think of going back to the physical health analogy that we overuse some of our muscles when we work out. We call this repetitive stress injuries. We get Uh stress fractures, we get tendonitis. Mm -hmm. And I think we have these repetitive injuries in our brains. Yes. Yes. And what are ways that we could practically redesign our lives to quiet this noise? I love this question. And so let's carry forward the physical analogy from repetitive stress injury then what recommendations do you make, Bon? I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting. I'm, I'm asking you. I just, I, just, I just turned into a psychiatrist. I'm reflecting back to you from emergency medicine mm. perspective. When you have a person come in with tennis elbow, carpal tunnel, oh, repetitive okay. stress injury, 
What's the number one recommendation yeah, you make? I, I go rest. Do, okay, do you not, said do not. exactly. <laughs> rest. And it goes back to exactly what you were saying when we're de- designing our lives. In this culture, we have an intolerance for rest. We have the idea that we don't need it. Or if you take a rest, then you're not fulfilling your full potential or you're not uh, giving the full product. You're not giving your most right. Like, what do we say? Give 110%. Again, language matters. Mindfulness is huge because what mindfulness says, and mindfulness is like pretty difficult for me to practice. I have to like get my stamina up because my brain is busy. But mindfulness doesn't say you have to have a quiet brain. It just says you have to just take this moment and just accept what this moment is. Don't do anything in this moment. Just like be aware of what this moment is. Take this whole moment in. And so people will say like, I tried meditating. I couldn't do it. Just take this one moment, even if it's just five seconds and allow yourself to have this rest for five seconds just five seconds like can you give me that and then you build your stamina to take that rest but you also are repeating over and over for your brain to not be judgmental of taking a rest so i had this i heard this great thing bond i don't even remember where it came from but it was like we need breaks humans need breaks they said you know why there's halftime at the football game because the audience also needs a break you know why there's intermission at the theater because everybody needs a break think of one recreational thing we do that doesn't have a break mm-hmm. we watch tv there are commercials you go to the game you go to the concert there's always a break and so why won't we build breaks as a necessary part of our existence in other dimensions. Mm-hmm. And especially during this time with endless Zoom meetings where we're all experiencing some Zoom fatigue right now. And then there's been some times where I go, I just can't make this Zoom meeting. I just can't do it. And it doesn't make sense to me. I feel kind of weak and bad for doing because like I'm at home in my shorts and why can't I just like turn on the computer, hop on this other Zoom meeting, but I need to rest my brain i need to rest and you know it's actually physiologically more difficult to look at a 2d image and your brain is trying to interpret zoom in 4d fascinating when it's actually 2d and so it's easier to be in the room with a person because your brain is like that face should be 3d right now but it's 2d and so you're actually using extra cognitive energy in a zoom call that you wouldn't use in person and we feel that the other thing is that in person we're sharing pheromones and those pheromones actually can drive energy and over zoom wait wait wait, what are you talking about the 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 pheromones that we smell yeah your body scent yeah (laughs) all of it and you don't even know that's happening but you're literally like you know You're like, oh, wow, that person transferred their energy to me. I felt it. That is actually a chemical electrical phenomenon. That is for real. You didn't just think they pepped you up. They actually chemically electrically pepped you up. And on Zoom, that whole dimension is missing. And so it's exhausting 
it is higher cognitive work and it's higher cognitive burden. And that's why. One thing is if you have to go to that meeting, then just turn your camera off. Mm -hmm. Like we've created space for that at Eleanor Health for people to be like, I'm here, but I just need my camera off for this meeting. We're like, all right, thanks. We're glad you made it. Mm. It reduces some of the cognitive burden. Mm. A question I, I like to ask all of my guests uh, mm -hmm. during this time that's been super stressful for us is how daily are you trying to replenish your tank during this time? I'm the worst at this, full disclosure. I try desperately to walk the talk because I talk a whole lot of talk, but it is an active effort for me to walk because I love working. So I can easily work 15 hours a day mm. to the detriment of filling my cup into my family. And so what I'm intentionally doing, um, I have drum lessons. I take a drum lesson during the workday. Oh, that's every so week. cool. For 30 minutes, and it's virtual, but Bon, I will send you a video of me learning to play Linkin Park. Yes. What I've done, right, on the drums. And then I make myself get up from work, this is awful, but no later than eight o'clock every night, and I leave my phone upstairs, and I go downstairs, and I spend time with my family, with my phone nowhere around, and I just, I just have to do that. And so those are the ways because what fills my cup is my family and drums. And so I carve out that time mm. every single day. I, what, what I took from that is that you really have to be proactive to rest. Proactive. Like rest is just not going to happen magically. You have to yes. actually design your day in order to build rest into your day. I'm going to have to like write a whole Bond chapter. I'm going to be like, these, these are the ideas that I have stolen, hashtag stolen from Bond. Rest cannot be reactive because that's how we are right now. We only rest when we crash. We have to be proactive about resting. Dang, man, you should have been a psychiatrist. No, we need you. We need you in emergency medicine. We need all of this in all specialties. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harrison, for being on Design Lab. It was an amazing conversation. Amazing. Please listen to her podcast, In Recovery. It's one of my favorites. And seek out mental health for yourselves during this time. Thank you, Vaughn. All right, that was our interview with Dr. Nzinga Harrison. I love speaking with her. I want to be Nzinga when I grow up. And right now I'm joined by our producer of Design Lab, Rob Puglisi. Rob and I use this time to ramble and to think about what is that design takeaway from the interview that we can apply to our own lives. What's going on? What's going on, Rob? How was that interview? Oh man, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna take a note from Nzinga and I need a break after that, honestly. After hearing you and her kind of talk about these concepts, I I absorb so much information that I really have not thought about in that way before that I think I need some time to process it, to be honest with you. What is one takeaway from that conversation that you think you could start applying like tomorrow? Because we, we try to do that with each of our interviews. We want to make it accessible to anyone who listens that by applying a different method or principle in your life that 
we can actually redesign our lives. Well, the first thing is that, you know, now I can recognize that you're not the way you are because you're a douchebag. <laughs> Wait, are you calling me a douchebag? No, and Zinga did, okay? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just got to give you some space, right? There are a lot of reasons for the way people act the way they do. And, uh, you know, mental health is such a hard thing to wrap your mind around. Health is already complicated enough. And mental health is just such a deep topic. And, and Zinka really presents it in a way that immediately I start seeing the ways in which maybe I have my own issues and can begin addressing them. What struck me was that if we're not actively designing space each day to work on our mental health, our brain health, that it's not going to happen because our normal baseline state is chaos. And we got to think about how am I going to design my day to give me space away from that chaos, to give me space to work on my mental health. I think the simple act of just taking a minute and doing an exercise and you say, what are my addictions? Throwing out, you know, the kind of the traditional ideas that everybody thinks about addiction with drugs and chemical substances. I'm immediately thinking like, I have some addictions, right? Like I'm a little bit addicted to television. I'm a little bit addicted to obviously caffeine, but everybody's okay with that addiction, apparently. I'm no, that's not a real addiction, caffeine. Come on, man. Right, I'm, not, right. I'm not giving up my coffee. Yeah, way to not address it directly, Bon. <laughs> that's the wrong way to talk about this. Um you know, like, really, I'm addicted to, like, sitting on my butt. Like, some people, I wish I was addicted to exercise. I am not. I am the opposite. I am <laughs> I am addicted to sitting on my ass. And there's a lot of addiction in my life when you start taking it apart. And if I can begin to understand them, and I'm sure there are many more that I can't even think about right now, I can start figuring out ways to be better. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Design Lab. Make sure you subscribe and rate our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen. I'm your host, Bon Koo, and this episode was produced by Rob Puglisi. Music in this episode was by the amazing Emmanuel Houston. See you next week.